Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. All right, turn to your neighbor and tell him, praise the Lord. Just want to say greetings and good afternoon to our church campuses in Itaewon and Seaside. And right now, our church campus in Sydney that is tuning in for the video sermon today. The Word of God is living and active. Whether you are here in person or listening via this video, this is the Word of God that is going to transform your life. Last week, I preached a message called Mutual Edification. Everyone say mutual edification. edification. The word of God said in Romans 14, 19, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding, for mutual edification, it says in the NIV. And I talked about how, how God is into architecture. He is building a structure, but it's not a structure of physical building, but it is a building made up of living stones. It is an architectural piece that he delights in, that he has great pride over. And it is a building, an architectural piece, a structure that is made up of people. And because the church is made up of people, we need to be good at edifying one another. We need to understand that when we edify one another, we are building up the church. We are building up God's structure. His oikodome. Amen? Amen. Today I'm going to talk about something that I learned from my Christian counseling textbook reading. Our textbook was actually quite small. It's the smallest textbook I've ever had for a class in my life. I think it was less than 100 pages. And it's a book by Larry Crabb. And it talks about the basics the basic principles of biblical counseling. So for those who attend the seminary, this, some of this stuff might be familiar to you. If it's new to you, you should have paid attention a little better. Uh, now, Larry Crabb begins by, in the book by looking at different psychological theories regarding how humans develop uh, psychologically. It talks about all these different theories from Freud to Skinner to Roger. There's all these different guys. One guy was like a PK who was like really, really, like really, really um, scarred. And he came up with all these unbiblical principles. So watch out. When you uh, meet a PK, you got to encourage them. They got enough pressure on their, on their shoulders. But anyway, uh, this guy did contribute some stuff that actually was, had some truth in it. That we, you know, derive some of his insights. But anyway, uh, Larry Kraft talks about different theories. But when it comes to presenting what he believes is a model for biblical counseling, he starts by saying that the basic personal need of each personal being is to regard himself as a worthwhile human being. To have a sense of worth, to regard yourself with worth, is the most basic of human needs. When this is not there, all kinds of psychological um, 
mental illnesses and psychological symptoms develop. And Larry Crabb says that nothing is sinful about the need to be worthwhile. To accept oneself as a worthwhile creature is absolutely necessary for effective, spiritual, joyful living. You are a person who has worth. Turn to your neighbor, tell him that. You have worth. We know that in the church, it is a very common thing. It's a common mantra to say before God, I am unworthy. I am unworthy. And we form almost doctrines around this Christian jargon, cliche. I am unworthy. And in one sense, it holds truth. But when it's taken to an unhealthy emphasis, it actually brings deception into the Christian life. A lot of people, they form ministries around this mantra that you are unworthy. In fact, there is a church in New York City that will remain unnamed whose ministry was around tearing people down, making them feel worthless, making them feel like a failure, like a wicked sinner that they are. And they even resorted to using curse words They train their small group leaders to use curse words that will remain unnamed. But you can think of the worst curse word. And they train their small group leaders to say that to their members just so that those members, it would hit home that they are worthless, unworthy, and they are in desperate need of a savior. Now, we all do need to come to that conclusion But I don't know if that's the best means by which to come to that conclusion. The Bible also says that the kindness of God leads us to repentance. Sometimes we go to God not because we just get a revelation of how wicked we are. And if you were like a drug dealer or you stab somebody or you live a life of immorality, you did some bad stuff. That's probably the revelation they'll come to eventually and that will lead you to God. But people like Anita Neufeld... (laughs) who grew up in Langley, Canada, who really never saw a gangster in her life, (laughs) except when they were driving through Vancouver. If you're like Pastor Anita, you know, you probably don't come to God just because you get a revelation of how wicked you are. You may come to God because of other things, including his kindness that leads us to repentance. But Larry Crabb, I think the points that he's making here have very deep insight for how we ought to see our lives and how we ought to see our world. You have got to love yourself. Amen? You got to believe that you are a person of worth. And I'm not talking self-improvement here. This is actually the gospel. It's just the gospel that's often missed by evangelical Christianity. We're not talking about self-improvement. And when I say you are a person of worth, I'm not saying that from a humanistic perspective. Humanists will say you are a person of worth simply because you are a human. We don't believe that. We believe what the scripture says. And when you're born into this world, you're born into a fallen world. You're born into a progeny, an offspring that is bent toward evil and rebellion against God. 
And because of your sin, your personal sin, the Bible says the wrath of God remains on you. And that the judgment of God ought to be justly poured out upon you. That's our true condition by being virtue of being born a human. But God, in his grace, sent his son to die on the cross, which is what we did during communion just now, to remember that sacrifice Why is it so important to remember that sacrifice? Because it all brings us back to why we now have worth. It's not because of anything we've done. But it's because of what Christ has done. That we now can have right standing before God. We are not just given a forgiveness position. We have a right standing before God. We are righteous. We're declared righteous in His sight. It's an amazing thing. The blood of Christ is an awesome exchange by which we are given worth in our lives. Uh, There's a quote that John Piper a lot of times he'll, he'll quote. He says, some things are loved because they are worthy. But other things are worthy because they're loved. The reason why you have such worth If you are a born-again believer in Christ, the reason why your life has such worth is because God has set his love on you. And here's something that will disturb some of you. He hasn't done it for everybody. He has not put that love on everyone. The Bible says, in love, he predestined us to be adopted as sons. But not everyone gets adopted as sons. So what, what audience is the Apostle Paul addressing there? He's not addressing the entire world. He says the church, to the saints in the church, in love, God predestined you to be adopted as sons. The reason you have such worth today is because God has put his sovereign choice upon you. And he has chosen to love you. And he has chosen to take care of your sin problem By sending his son to die on the cross. Now you. Today. You are a person of worth. Now practically. In order to experience a deep sense. That I am worthwhile. Larry Crabb says that each of us. Must be rationally aware. Of two elements in our lives. The first. Is significance. Everyone say significance. And the second is security. If you want to have a deep sense that I am worthwhile, if you want to regard yourself as worthwhile, you got to have significance and you got to have security in your life. Today I'm going to talk about significance. Whether you are a Christian or not, if you look around the world today, every human being desires to have significance. They desire to have a purpose for living which will give him or her a real and lasting impact on their world. Each person desires to live for a purpose which they can believe in and which they can adequately accomplish. Secular psychologists have consistently identified this need as being basic to every human being. There's an existentialist named Viktor Frankl. He spent a number of years in a Nazi concentration camp. 
And he noticed that those who survived through it and did not psychologically fall apart were those who were living for a definite purpose. Whether it was to get back to their family, it was to uh, achieve an occupational goal, finish a book, etc. Whatever it was, for those who had that kind of definite purpose and goal, they tended to survive the harsh realities of those Nazi concentration camps. There's a guy named Bruno Bettelheim who has worked extensively with autistic children. And he came, he came up with a three-stage process for psychological development. In the first stage, a child learns how to name things. Mommy, spoon, table, toy. And the second stage, the child becomes aware of a relationship between the things that they have named. When I push the spoon off the table, it makes a noise on the ground. And, you know, when a baby does that and, you know, you're like babysitting or something or you're the mother or father, you know, that might annoy you. Why is a child continually throwing that spoon on the table? But that child may be in that development stage where it's learning that there's a relationship between the objects of the world. And then third stage, the baby looks for ways to feel like he or she belongs in the world. To be the cause in a cause-effect sequence. This is when intentionality develops. He notices that his mother consistently pays attention to him when he throws the spoon on the ground. His mom is watching TV, watching Good Doctor or whatever, some Korean drama that's on TV. And the baby's like, I want your attention, mommy. And the, the baby pushes the spoon off the table, and then, oh, here comes mommy. Mommy looks angry, but here comes mommy. <laughs> the baby starts to develop intentionality. The baby is now making an impact on his world. And he or she develops a sense that she matters, that he matters. And this is the beginnings of significance. Bettelheim says that children who never develop to this third stage suffer psychological problems. Why? Because without a sense of significance, he or she has no basis for regarding themselves as worthwhile. As worthwhile. A sense of dignity is never developed. You know, dignity, you know what dignity means? You know, how dare you step on my dignity? How dare you? You know, we use dignity a lot. But dignity essentially means a sense of worth. A sense of worth to receive respect, honor. It's that kind of sense. We all need our dignity to be developed in a healthy manner. Amen? If you don't have a strong sense of dignity, you can't be a good leader. Because everything you do might be out of fear or insecurity rather than from a place of confidence. You can't really help people when you have no sense of dignity, when you have no sense of significance. Rollo May wrote a book called Power and Innocence. Larry Crabb mentions this book, Power and Innocence. 
And Rollo May suggests that the frustrated need for causal impact or significance, when young people, when they have a frustrated tension to have this need met, but it's not met, this causal impact, this significance, when it's not met, it leads to aggression and violence. And this author talks about the student riots of the 1960s. These riots in UC Berkeley and other famous schools across the country which participated in such riots, especially during the Vietnam War, were not the result of bad students, hoodlums, that decided to get together and start riots, but it came from a deep, unfulfilled need for significance. Young people wanted a purpose worth dying for. They wanted clear, constructive, lasting impact. And so what did they do? They burn a flag. They do sit-ins. They do demonstrations in front of the uh, campus Uh, the library steps or something like that. Why? Because these events give them an immediate sense of impact. And it satisfies that need for significance. It's an attractive step towards uh, fulfilling that need for significance. Other times, uh, movements, oftentimes, movements like this, like violent movements, are started by young people. If you really study it, whether they start peacefully or violently, they always end, a lot of times they end up violently. A lot Young people tend to move, uh, start them. And I believe this is because young people have less inhibitions. Uh, you look at the Tiananmen Square massacre in China. What was that precipitated by? It was precipitated by college students who had this unfulfilled need for significance. They felt like the government was oppressive, the government did not listen to what they, their, their concerns and feedback was. And they wanted democracy. They wanted freedom. They wanted to have a bigger say. And so what did they do? They started to occupy Tiananmen Square. And the Chinese government came in and used military force, murdering who knows how many young people that, were, that gave up their lives because they had such a driven need for this significance. Korea has a very similar type of event that took place. It was about a decade earlier. It's called the Gwangju Massacre. Anyone know about the Gwangju Massacre? It took place around 1980, I believe. In the city of Gwangju, in the Cholado province of Korea. And at that time, CNN, these news, cable news networks were not that popular, but they covered it. They were one of the few news uh, stations that kind of covered it. So there's some footage that they took. But the uh, Korean government did not put it on anywhere on TV, did not put it on anywhere on radio. They were very, very controlling about it. And what ended up happening was young people in Gwangju, they were tired of the military government in South Korea. If you didn't know the history, South Korean presidents were really not democratic presidents. Many of them did horrible things. Whenever they felt dissension or opposition, they would unjustifiably uh, just jail people and put them in prison and torture them. It was a military-type government. And the people of Gwangju, especially young people, they felt like they cannot make a lasting impact in that environment. So what did they do? They rose up and started demonstrating, and then the government came down, just like China, with violent force. 
And some of these young people turned and retaliated with violence. And it turned into a huge siege, siege of the city that lasted for days and resulted in thousands of deaths. And to this day, we don't know how many people actually died. But if you ever visit Gwangju, that's a big part of their history. If you look at Korean youth and suicide, it all goes back to this need for significance. When young people in this Korean system, this Korean education system that is supposed to produce the next CEOs, the doctors, the lawyers, it's a system that is ruled by Confucian principles and does not allow for much freedom and creativity. When young people who actually have a call to be a breakdancer, they are called to be a singer, they are called to be a filmmaker, when they cannot find the outlets in these traditional systems and they are continually oppressed, sometimes young people don't respond with violence, they res- respond with introversion, depression, And in the Confucian system where suicide is seen as a virtue in in certain incidents, some of these young people even resort to suicide. This is a very basic need, the need for significance. And whenever there are violent demonstrations or young people committing suicide, whenever there's violent demonstrations, we got to hold those people responsible. We can't excuse their behavior, of course. But we must also look beneath the behavior and identify the deep and personal needs that are not being met inside of them. We've got to ask these young people, uh, help them to find answers to questions like, what am I living for? How can my life make an impact? Various psychologists provide different answers to meet this basic need for significance. Humanists say that we are important because we are humans. Another school of thought denies the existence of such a need altogether. Followers of Freud treat the problem as symptomatic. And uh, they believe that it's actually this need for significance is a result of unmet needs of physical pleasure. Uh, Existentialists recognize the validity of the need, but they encourage each person just to work out their own solutions because everything's meaningless anyway. And what I'm here to tell you today is that without God in your life, your life will have no significance. It will have no meaningful, lasting significance. You can't do it. It is impossible. Everything that occurs in your life, if there's no God, is simply a collision of random, meaningless accidents. Pure random chance is the ultimate ultimate governing reality in your life. If there's no God. Or if you're more of an agnostic or you're a backsliding Christian, you believe in God, but you believe your God is impersonal. Or you are intentionally keeping God at a distance. If this is how you are living, you will also have no true sense of significance in your life. Without a personal God, there is no design. There is no design or order to this world. And without design, there is no purpose or goal. And there, without a purpose or goal, there is no intentional movement toward anything 
that are supposed to be carefully planned out. Without a personal God in your life, your life will lack significance. Now, Larry Crabb, he points out that Jean Paul Sartar, I don't know how to say his name. Yeah, close enough. Jean Paul observed that a finite point, this is a little philosophical, so just listen. A finite point requires an infinite reference point if it is to have meaning. In other words, a finite point derives its meaning from its context. So the way that a finite point, let's say this is a line, a finite point derives meaning, it's from an infinite reference point. If you can't get to an infinite reference point, then you derive it from the little context that you can find. All right, everybody with me? I'm not good at philosophy either, so (laughs) stick with me here. And if I, as a finite being, with a, I'm finite, we may live for eternity, but I'm finite in the sense that I have a definite beginning. God doesn't. He's the Alpha and Omega. You go to the beginning of the alphabet, the end of the alphabet, you go left or right, He's always there. You go north and south, He's always there. You go front and back, He's always there. He has no beginning, but you do. 1979, March 12th, I had a beginning. My beginning was even before that, nine months in my mother's womb. Now, if I, as a finite being, exists in the context of a world that's created by an impersonal God, my life becomes a random occurrence. A big bang that's headed nowhere. A chance phenomenon with no real significance. But what you will notice is, Christian or not, men and women find it very difficult to live with this. Nobody lives their lives with this kind of of thinking or perspective because it's very hard to live life believing it's just random occurrence when you meet somebody new that's really cute you think maybe there's some purpose to this maybe she's my wife you know but if you if it's all random occurrence you meet anybody even if you meet them like three times in a row in the subway on the bus and you know why at your doorstep like you know like even if, you, if all those things happen, all these strange coincidences happen, in your perspective, you would have to conclude it's still random. There would be no meaning to it. And very few men and women, Christian or not, find it very difficult to live with this. That's because they have real personal needs. And if these needs are not met, it's difficult to survive as a person. You see, we're all created in the image of God. And God is a personal being. And that's why we are personal creatures. And we have personal needs. And without, a personal, without connecting back to that personal God, your life has very little meaning. And so what many people do to avoid thinking about the big picture is they set their minds and hearts on short-term goals in their life. For example, getting their college degree. Getting, when they get their bachelor's, what do they do? Oh, I feel so empty inside. Let me go get my master's. You get your master's. The job market is very bad. What do you do? Oh, I don't want to deal with this emptiness inside. Go get a doctorate. You get your doctorate, and what do you do? You're 60 years old. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Uh, But a lot of people, 
they deal, they avoid thinking about the big picture of significance by setting their hearts and minds on short-term goals. Education, getting a job, getting married, starting a family, acquiring wealth. When a person immerses themselves in, this, in these things and keeps busy with these things, they can avoid asking the tough questions. They experience a temporary sense of significance, which temporarily meets their need for the sense of worth. In order to enjoy psychological health, people must meet their need for significance. If this does not happen, you have crazy people. You have people that cannot live their lives properly. You know, this is why, um, this is why old people, older people, I'm sorry. We have some uh, parents in the room, so I want to be more sensitive now. And one day, you know, you guys are all going to grow old. I'm going to grow old, and I can't talk like this, you know. <laughs> so just enjoy it while, while it lasts. But uh, we have some older folks in the room, and sometimes older people, what they will notice around them is that a lot of other older peers, they have what's called a midlife crisis. What is that? That's where they have been fulfilling this need for worth, fulfilling this need for significance. They've been fulfilling it by going from one temporary goal to another. They, get, they graduate high school. All right, now what's next? You graduate college. All right, now what? Well, in, in American and Korean context, this is normal, right? And then after you graduate college, what do you do? You might get a master's degree. If you don't get a master's degree, what do you do? You go get a job. You get a good, well-paying, stable job. After you get the job, what happens? You go get married. Hurry up and get married. That's your next step. After you get married, what do parents pressure you to do? Go have a child. Hurry up and have a child. And so you have the child. And then what happens is when the child reaches their teenage years, and that child's not dependent on you anymore. And in fact, that child wants some freedom from you. That child wants some space from you. You start to realize, oh, snap, what's my next goal? I don't have one. I've run out. I'm going to go find one, or for those who can't find one, they find themselves in what's called a midlife crisis. Their need for significance cannot any longer be filled, fulfilled by a temporary goal. And various people, they deal with that midlife crisis in various ways. Some people, what do they do? They seek out an adulterous affair. Never thought about adultery before. But in those moments, in in that stage of life, they're the most vulnerable. Non-believers, backsliding Christians, we experience a non-lasting significance from short-term goals. And people like this, they seem to function reasonably well. But in moments of honest self-examination, they often notice that deep down there's something wrong. There's something missing. I'm not satisfied with this fame. You might be like Kanye. (laughs) Rapper. I'm the biggest rapper of all time. I got all this money. I got my own clothing line. I got my own fragrance. That's when you know you made it, right? That's when you know you're a person of significance, when the people are wearing your fragrance around the whole world. You know? Maybe you got the wealth and fame. But if you talk to the people with the wealth and fame, 
They'll never tell you, oh, I'm satisfied. They might say that out front, but they won't tell you that when you're alone with them. Because it's all temporary. When they die, it all perishes. With no grit for answers, non-Christians and backsliding Christians, they ignore this uneasiness by simply renewing their commitment for more short-term goals. In the book of Romans, Paul talks about, turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 21 to 23. The book of Romans, Paul talks about Christian resources that we are given so that we can fulfill this need for worth, that we can fulfill this need for significance. But what he starts out with in Romans chapter, Romans 1, verse 21 to 23, read this with me. Follow along. I'm going to read the ESV. This is talking about People who are godless, people who do not know God, non-Christians, non-believers, even, you know, backsliding Christians. Look at verse 21 to 23. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they came, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God For images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Throughout human history, the people that have bowed down to idols are not just the poor, are not just the uneducated. Some of the wisest of the wise, they bow down before a statue of a reptile, a statue of a fictional being. And the first wrong turn that people make, which leads to other utter futility and meaninglessness, is when people fail to glorify God as God. When you do not glorify God as God, you are doomed to a life of meaningless existence. If you want significance in your life, you must glorify God. You got to learn how to live a life that glorifies God. Humble yourself continually before him. Acknowledge his right to run your life, to guide your life. He is under the impression that he is Lord. Why do you make, it, make him feel like he's under a false impression all the time? If he is indeed Lord, let him run your life and learn to walk in his ways. The first step of glorifying God as a Christian is to accept, God's death, uh, accept Christ's death as God's provision and penalty for our sins. And by putting our faith in Christ, what happens? God indwells us by his spirit And now we can begin to do and to will according to his good pleasure. Philippines 2.13. Now, when you wake up in the morning, you put on your clothes, you wash your face. Every routine task from this point on after you receive Christ and you're into the Holy Spirit 
every routine mundane tasks now has meaning. Why? Because the meaning is derived from its context. The context of my life now becomes the eternal purpose and glory of a sovereign yet personal and loving God. Like that philosopher earlier says, a finite point derives its meaning from its context. When you receive Christ, your life as a whole can intelligently claim to be truly significant because now it is part of the exciting purposes of the sovereign God. And this is fundamental to the Christian mindset. So when you're alone by yourself, don't ever tell yourself I'm a nobody. I got to humble myself by telling myself I'm a nobody. I'm no good. I'm a failure. I'm weak. Now, there is a glorying that we do in our weakness. But even, the Bible teaches that even in our weakness, we are strong. Because of God's grace. So the ultimate goal of you glorying in your weakness, boasting in your weakness, is not so that you can say, I am weak. But you say, even that when I am weak, I am strong. (laughs) This is what Pastor Benjamin teaches. And it's so subtle. But evangelical Christianity a lot of times misses this. It teaches us to go home and say you're unworthy. I'm a nobody. You look in the mirror, I'm a nobody. I think Stuart Smalley from SNL got it a little bit closer to the Bible than what evangelical Christians and religious Christians sometimes do. You're a person who has worth. So don't say that you are a nobody or that you are worthless or unworthy. That's the religious spirit. That's the Pharisaic spirit. Well, what about the passages? And there's two passages I can think of, right? Where the guy uh, gives an offering and says, Lord, have mercy on me. You know, like I'm an unworthy servant or something like that. And there's another one where Jesus tells a parable when the the servants come in at the end of the day, you know, does uh, the master say, come sit at the table and dine with me? No, they they just say we're we're just unworthy servants. We're just doing our duty. Those are two passages I can think of. But we, we... got to understand that those passages must be interpreted in the context of the overall holistic message of the bible and what is the overall holistic message of the bible it's christ died for sinners so that he can restore your sense of worth not to take it away and to strip it away and never give it back to you until you go to heaven he wants you to live with a strong sense of dignity and worth a strong sense of significance Now, you were a nobody. You were unworthy at one point. But that's before Christ entered your life. So to restore or strengthen a sense of significance, I'm going to close with three steps. Because three things are very easy to remember. Four to five to ten, not so much. But three things, always easy to remember, three things. Here comes three things for you. To restore or strengthen a sense of significance, number one, you got to glorify God as God. We talked about that. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Amen? Yeah. If you're not doing it for His glory, you're doing it for your own selfish ambition. 
you're not, if it's not all connected to the glory of God, you're not going to have that lasting, you're not going to have a strong sense of significance. Number two, understand that God has a wonderful purpose and specific plan for your life. You want to have a strong sense of significance? You got to understand that God's got a plan for you. God is not the deistic God who winds up the world, lets it go, and just, hey, all right, you guys are on your own now. I did my part. I'm God. Now you're on your own. No, we don't have a God like that. We have a God who enters our world in the form of flesh, talks to us, jokes with us, goes to the bathroom with us, feeds us, <laughs> teaches us, rebukes us. We have a God who is very personal. When you see Jesus, you don't see an impersonal God. You don't see an Aristotelian God. A God who is just off. You know, a God who is so transcendent. He, he, he's so perfect. You can't, you can't even interact with him. God is so perfect, you can't even interact. And that's not the God we see. We see Jesus. The perfect manifestation of God. And what does he do? He starts picking the grains of wheat on the day of Sabbath. He heals the sick on the day of Sabbath just to annoy the religious leaders. Anyway, if you ever try to scrutinize whether God is on the side of more religious folks or God is more on the side of more, I don't know what you would call it, people who are down. If you, if you think God's more on the side that's very austere and strict and rigid and religious, or you think God is more on the side of being down with it, all right, you should, you should read the Gospels. Pretty sure Jesus is down with it. He was known to be a friend of tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. He was accused of being filled with a demon. Anyway, well, uh, God's got a plan for your life. You are not meant to just make the most of your life. And by the way, you are not meant, you do not have the ability to do whatever you want. That's like the American dream. Set your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. Wrong. I can set my mind to be an NBA star, it ain't never gonna happen. Let's face the music. Just because you set your mind to it doesn't mean you can accomplish it. Your life has meaning when you discover the gifts, the personality that God created you with. Why did God give you all that stuff? Because it's part of a bigger picture. You're supposed to do your part. There's a design to it. If you stop running away, stop ignoring God, you begin to see that design at work. How purposeful it is. How meaningful it is. Anyway, like Pastor Benjamin says, a passion without gifting is a distraction. Hallelujah. So if you are going to pursue some, make sure it lines up with what God is revealing about what you have and who you are. Not getting a loud amen on that one. The Bible says in Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Check this out which God prepared in advance for us to do. You see the design? 
You see the predestinating. You see the purpose. Before any of your days came to be, the Bible says, God has ordained it. He wrote about it in his book. Isaac Kim will be born into the world in 1986. And, you know, it's like the year 1021. Or I don't know anything that had been 1021. Let's go to 1400. And there's like medieval knights and some William Wallace and Scottish uprisings and stuff. In that context, God says in that context, I have a plan to bring this young man into the world. His name is Isaac Kim, 1986. And I've given him certain musical giftings. I've given him a certain kind of humor. I've actually set times and places where he ought to live. He thinks he's going to live in California for the rest of his life. But his visa is going to expire at a certain point, And he's going to have to return to Korea and go to a church of a young uh, Korean American leader that he met in California by chance that we, a year earlier. And, and who he asked about healing and deliverance ministry. I remember I met Isaac. I was like, who is this kid? He was like, oh, I need to learn about healing deliverance music. Can you? He had all these questions. and I, I was trying to eat my food. <laughs> I was like, Lord, does this guy have anything to do with me? Because, you know, a lot of times if I feel like, like we're, our, you know, God's plans for our lives aren't that connected, hey, I'm very pragmatic. I, I, don't, I don't need to talk to you that much. <laughs> hey, there's like a billions of people in the world. I can't, get, I can't be best friends with everybody. I can't, I can't remember the life stories of everybody, right? I got already enough life stories to remember. So, you know, I'm just asking God, Lord, is anything new with anyone? And, and God just said, just listen to the young man. So, I'm sorry, Isaac, this is a confession. That day, that day, I actually only heard about 40% of what you were saying. I, I'm trying to eat my food. He just kept coming with question after question. Wait a minute, God had ordained all that. And about a year later, what happens? Visa expires, he comes to Korea. And in between, what happened? Pastor Benjamin had given leadership to the ark and God was already preparing Isaac to come to Korea. And then God had already prepared him to be accepted into the, was it, uh, what's the program called? Air Force Interpreting the air force interpreting officer school for the prestigious people. <laughs> like God had already ordained all that, that, that kind of program for him. And so even as he's preparing, he just feels inadequate and God's just trying to tell him, no, this is my plan for you. All right. Just keep preparing because my grace is sufficient. And he just prepared and he prepared. And miraculously, he got in. Because <laughs> although he prepared, he still felt inadequate. He knew he was inadequate, but by the favor of God, he got in. Anyway, what I'm trying to say, you are God's workmanship. You're created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he has prepared in advance. So what's your job? Your job is to find out what they are. How do you find out what they are? You got to have a personal relationship with him. And you got to keep talking to him. Because he only reveals little by little. Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And Jeremiah prophesied that to a people that were living in destruction and exile. So number one, you got to glorify God. For your sense of significance to grow. Number two, you got to understand God has a plan for your life. You got to go find out what that plan is. And number three, understand that significance is connected to the significance of others. Oh, snap. What? Yes. 
Your destiny, if God is going to fulfill your destiny, you got to help and edify Isaac Kim to fulfill his destiny. You got to help Megyeon fulfill her destiny. Your significance is connected to the significance of others. When you edify one another, you will all grow in that sense of significance and worth. A lot of times God uses the church community to increase our sense of dignity. Don't, 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 don't we? Because you can't really grow in a sense of dignity, of worth, feeling like you have worth without people. Nobody in a cave says, I'm the most, I have the most dignity in the world. Thank you, God. No one's in a cave saying that. Gets lived out in everyday life. Ephesians 4, Paul speaks of the body of Christ, the church, as growing when each part does its work. When each member of the body of Christ is equipped for the works of service, when every one of them is doing the work of ministry, then the whole body grows up together. And our sense of significance, not only as individuals, but as a church, as a corporate body, begins to grow. Because you know what? One plus one equals three. It's called synergy. You can do something with your own life alone, isolated from everybody. Hear me. This is for you. You can choose to live your life on your own apart from anybody else. And you could accomplish some things for your life. But if you get together with just one other person, what you, both of you would have done alone, it will, the sum of that will not be the result of you working together. If you were to work together, the sum of what you can do together is exponentially greater than what you would have done alone on your own. That's just one plus one. But let's talk about 200 plus one. You are that one. You're coming out to New Philly. And you're like, oh, these messages are nice. Preacher's a little funny. A little different than me. I grew up in Langley, Canada. I don't really relate to all of these ghetto stories from his urban childhood. But you know what? I feel it. I think he's a funny guy. I keep coming out. It's a cute boy over there. I'll check him out. But... They don't know what I've done. They don't know me. And you know what? I don't, I don't want to let them in. Last time I let somebody in, they hurt me. Last time I, let a, I got involved at a church, they betrayed me, gossiped about me, said all kinds of false things about me and my family. You don't touch my mama. You talk about me, but you don't touch my mama. There are all kinds of wounds and hurts. And you refuse to get involved. You refuse to let down your walls. Check it out. We ain't going to bite. We're here not to judge you. We're here to accept you right where you are right now. But we love you too much to keep you where you are right now. We're also going to edify you so we bring out the best in you. In fact, if you stay where you are right now in terms of character, maturity, and gifting, we will rebuke you in five years. (laughs) What are you doing with your life? Jesus will rebuke you. He gives you a talent. He gives you some money. In the parable, he expected those servants to multiply it. He expected more than what he invested. That's a healthy community when they expect more than where you're at right now. 
When the word of God is added in there, and love, and sunlight of love, and the water of the words of life, and, you know, water, and sun, and, you know, seeds, you put that all together, it becomes the largest of all garden plants. That's the kingdom. So, you got to glorify God. You got to understand God's got a plan. And number three, you got to understand your significance is connected to the significance of others. So, edify one another. Uh, and, and I want to talk about two aspects of biblical significance. It's going to be just a, two minutes, okay? <laughs> Larry Crabb, this is his last two points. This is very important. If you want to have a healthy view of biblical significance, you've got to remember these two aspects. Whatever role that God calls you to, number one, he will equip you to function adequately. He will not set you up for failure. God's not in the business of, uh, let's call Sole to do the music ministry, but not give her enough gifting to be successful at it, not surround her with the right people to be successful at it, and let's place her randomly in Seoul, Korea in her young 20s, and then, and, then, and then she'll just fail, and let's get a laugh out of that. God's not in the business of doing that. He's not setting you up for failure. Every, every step back is actually a setup. You know what? Y'all need to learn from Joel Osteen. Because you might hate on him because he's got too big of a smile. Because he's too happy and it just uh, just creeps you out because he's so happy. But you know what? Stop hating on him. You need to learn from Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen is bringing healing to so many people in the body of Christ that have been beat down by religion. Why has he got the largest church in America right now? Why are so many people consistently going out to his meetings all over the country, to his church? Every single week. Why are so many people doing that? Because Joel Olstein is really good. Joel and Victoria are really good at helping people get restored to a sense of worth. They're good at clothing people in dignity. You know what happens when they go back to their churches? They get stripped of that dignity again. And they go have to, they have to listen to Joel Olstein again to get clothed in dignity again. And I recommend the last book of the uh, last month's book of the month was Joel Osteen's "Become a Better You." I heard only one copy got sold. Whoever that one person is, oh, you're gonna be successful and you're gonna be blessed. <laughs> the rest of y'all, I'm gonna rebuke you in five years. Don't hate on the book because of the cover. <laughs> what I'm telling you right now is, Pastor Aaron and I, we read that book right before we got married. It was our best premarital counseling. We only got through one-third of the book, and it blessed us so much. (laughs) Oh, you finished it. I'm sorry, honey. So that's why you became a better you, but not me. I got to go finish that book. Hey, Joel Osteen's really good at at clothing the body of Christ in dignity, and we need that. We need that. Anyway, whatever God calls you to, he will equip you so that you can do it adequately. So whenever you feel inadequate, but you know God's called you to do it, that's when you need to take a stand and you need to humble yourself. You say, you ask the Lord for wisdom and strength. Lord, I, I, don't, I, I know you've called me to do this. You've gifted me in it, but right now I feel inadequate. But a lot of times we as Christians, we allow that feeling to become our truth. Uh, then I guess I can't do it. Or I'm just going to do a shoddy job. No. When you feel that, 
that's your moment of weakness. That's when you got to boast in your weakness and say, Lord, fill me with your spirit. I feel inadequate, but oh, hallelujah, I know you've equipped me to succeed. Even if I stumble, I'm going to stumble forward through this sermon. Even if I stumble, I'm going to stumble forward because of your grace. Whatever God's called you to, he equips you to do it adequately. And second is self-acceptance. Another aspect of biblical significance is self-acceptance. This is Larry Crabb said. Many people go through life believing I could accept myself as a worthwhile person if I were smarter, better looking, more athletic, more talented, etc. But when a Christian grasps the truth that God has designed him perfectly to fit his purpose, when he sets his will to be in the center of God's will, self-acceptance becomes a natural outgrowth of thanksgiving to God for his perfect planning. What's he saying? If you want to grow in your sense of significance, you got to accept yourself as God made you. Stop trying to live somebody else's life. Introverts, listen here. Stop trying to live somebody else's life. God didn't create you the way you are by accident. And let's just face the facts. Look, everybody can't look like a supermodel. Or else supermodels won't be supermodels. So what? God didn't create you to look like a supermodel. So what? But you're still good at other things that supermodels can't even figure out. God's opened up doors for you. That supermodel will never even come by. Stop trying to live somebody else's life. Accept yourself as you are. Five foot six, balding a little bit at the top. Can't pronounce, pronounce certain words right. I'm making up my own pronunciations. Accept yourself. You know why so many people experience healing here at New Philly? Because, man, if there's somebody who has accepted themselves, it's me. Oh, man, I need to close. I'm sorry. Let me, let me close right now. Uh, right now at each campus, I want to ask the uh, pastors to come up to the front. Let's get some of the altar ministers and pastors come up to the front. And I want to take this time and pray for some people. Because let me tell you, just like Larry Crabb said, when you are not able to meet your need for significance and worth, and your sense of significance is a big part, it's the first part of your sense of worth. Next week, I'll talk about security. And how without security, you also cannot really fully develop your sense of worth and dignity. But today, I talked about significance. And what am I really trying to say? And at every campus, I want to ask all the pastors to come up to the front and be available to pray for people. And even as the video cuts off, I want to ask all those pastors to go ahead and minister. Let's get some uh, keyboardists up at Itaewon. Lydia, come up and pray for the keyboard at Itaewon. Uh, um, Herman, grab the guitar at Busan. 
And at Sydney, uh, four horsemen. Why don't you guys just make yourselves available just to pray for the people there. But what's my message today? My message today is that you matter. You may not feel like you matter. You may not feel like you have worth. But I'm here to tell you, you're precious in God's sight. And not only does he love you, but he's got a plan for you. Maybe because of your family upbringing, it's been very difficult for you to feel a sense of significance. Maybe your parents actually oppressed you or said all kinds of abusive verbal garbage at you to tear you down all the time. And it's for the first time in your life you're starting to be built up and edified. Well, I'm here to tell you right now, God's got an amazing plan for your life. And nothing that the devil does can hold you back from those plans. If all you do is awaken yourself and start to live by faith. Start to believe that God's got an amazing plan for your life. Stop putting that plan on hold. Stop trying to govern your own life. Glorify God as God. Understand he has a specific plan. He doesn't have it just for Pastor Christian. He doesn't have it for just Jamie who's going to Australia. He doesn't have it just for Todd because he got sent down to Busan. He doesn't have it just for them. He has it for you. He wants your life to count. He has designed it so that your life matters. That it has meaning. Today you got to learn how to silence the voice of the accuser. And start to live in light of the voice of the Lord. So at every campus right now, if you feel like you've been really struggling with a sense of worth and people have beaten you down and you're just really struggling with even a sense of significance about your life, you just feel like your life is getting random, you don't know what you're doing with your life, you don't even know why you're here in Korea. And today you really want to connect with this personal God. And you want to say, God, I want to start living for you and your glory. I want to know and fulfill the plans that you have for me.